That's a great recovery. That was very good. Very good. Let me pray. Our Father, we um, we thank you for the privilege it is to have such a important and significant thing happen that uh, we can have your word read publicly. Uh, thank you for that. And we pray, please, tonight that you would cause that word uh, to dwell in our hearts richly, that it might um, tonight transform and change us, uh, grab us deeply with the truth of what you've done in Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yep, we're starting a new series. We're back into the book of Hebrews. We were in this book uh, last year up to uh, chapter, end of chapter 7 and we're starting at chapter 8. It's a, it's a great book. It's an ancient sermon. If you were with us last year, you'll know some of this background, but just in case you weren't, it's an ancient sermon. Chapter 13, the very end of the book, tells us that. Uh, so, so this is the kind of sermon you would have got in the first century. If you went to church uh, back in kind of just after Jesus' time, um, you, you would get Hebrews preach to you and just by the by I always think it's a fun fact uh, if you read if you read publicly read out loud the book of Hebrews it would take you about how long to read it through about about two hours that's what you expect tonight another sermon of two hours length now it's about 45 minutes uh, you read through so that, this is the kind of sermon you'd be getting uh, it, it wouldn't be kind of um, lots of jokes and uh, you know um, stories from the internet and lots of emotionalism it'd be this kind of stuff deep rich thoughtful stuff uh, this is the kind of thing they did and the whole book is the sermon is preached the book is written uh, to help Christians not drift away from the Christian faith. The particular setting is that it's, uh, it's likely written to Christians in Rome and uh, in a context where they, they've probably just experienced persecution, where a lot of the Christians we get from other uh, non-biblical literature were kicked out of Rome by one of the emperors. Uh, there was a dispute over a man called Christus and uh, that, uh, Christus, and that was the impetus for probably a debate amongst the Jews around Christ and the emperor kicked them out. Um, that's happened in their past uh, and it's something that's far enough back that they can remember it but it seems like there's persecution on the horizon again. It's coming at them and uh, they're under, they're un there's a great temptation amongst these young group of Christians to go back to Judaism. They're probably Jewish converts, that is, they were, they were Jews who become converted to Jesus, the true Messiah. And uh, Judaism was a protected religion back in the first century, uh, so it was a safe place to be. Christianity wasn't protected. If you're a Christian, you're, uh, it was open slather. You could be persecuted, killed, fed to the lions and so on. And so some of them were tempted to go back to Judaism. That's the context. And this book, uh, it, this sermon is preached, written to these uh, struggling Christians, uh, you know, struggling to get along to church still, feeling the pressures of being public in their faith, uh, wondering if they can keep standing. It's written to help them stick it out. And it really is deep and rich. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Grab your Bibles, let's start looking at some of it. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. The main point of what we are saying is, just don't go any further. Just notice the, that little uh, part of the sentence. The main point of what we are saying is this. That tells you something about the nature of what he's writing. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. I've just spent a lot of time making a point, says the author. Because the sermon in the ancient world was full of rich content where he'd develop an idea over a couple of chapters and then pull that idea together and say, here's the main point of what I'm saying. Uh, where, where I want to take this with us tonight is just to remind us that he thinks that if you're going to be helped to stick at being a Christian, you need more than just superficial, fluffy worship songs. You need good, substantial singing. And you need good, substantial thinking. 
You need to be pushed deep to understand the place of Christ, who he is, what he's done, how it relates to the Old Testament. That's what this author thinks. To help these Christians stick at it, he's going to take them deep. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, written by another author in the New Testament, says that the reason you're knocked back and forward by every wind of teaching is because you haven't got any roots. You're not deep in the Word of God. And so uh, I just want to encourage you to make that a pattern, a way of thinking about the Christian life. If I want to move forward and be strong and deep, I've got to think deeply. I've got to commit to understanding things and growing. Now, what he grows us in is an understanding of the person of Jesus. And we'll see that as we go through. Now, here's the thing for us tonight. Are you in danger of drifting? Are you sitting there thinking to yourself... um, you know, uh, this is all well and good, you know, I'm sort of in, but sometimes out, and I see how some people are really excited about Christianity, and I think it's probably true, but, you know, um, uh, the pressures are great to continue as being a Christian, there's lots going on in my life, I'm not sure I want to stick at it. Are you in that place? Now, the pressures are great, and getting greater. So you uh, were, many of you will be aware, I mean, Dave mentioned it to us last week, that... um, uh, in Melbourne, this last couple of weeks, there was a man who was appointed the CEO of a, of a, uh, a Aussie Rules team, Essendon, and he was forced to have to make a decision between will he continue in his job with Essendon or will he continue in his role at his church. He was forced into having to make that decision. It's very, very difficult. He made the decision to stick with church and gave up his dream job. You might be in that context where friends, family, workmates are pushing you about your Christian faith. Are you tempted to drift? Now, it might be this. See, very few of us are tempted to give up on God. Some people are, but not many people are going to give up on God and become an atheist. Rather, what happens is, if people drift, they tend to drift into a more broader, um, more open kind of relationship with God. So I'm not giving up on God, I've still got a living relationship with God and Jesus I really think is amazing and wonderful but I just, want to, I just want to have a broader faith than you people have. I want to have a faith where I recognise there's lots of people in relationship with God, it's not just Christians, that's just so narrow and arrogant. And so I'm, I'm not drifting away from God, I'm just drifting away from the way you think about Christianity and relationship with God. Now that might be your drift. Are you drifting into a place where the shape of your relationship with God doesn't need to be so clearly defined? There's more opportunity for variety, you can pursue different things and God will be okay with you? Is that where you might be drifting? This is really important to tackle because in a roundabout way, that kind of thinking about drifting is very much more like the exact circumstances of what was going on in Hebrews in the first century. Uh, They were drifting but not into atheism, they were drifting in back into another religion. They weren't giving up on religion, but they were drifting into a safer religious expression of following God. And in doing so, they were operating with what I want to call a fairly well-trod path that we have experienced. Where it doesn't matter so much which religion, as long as you have a living relationship with God and you care about Jesus, uh, there are different paths to the one God and it's okay to go your own way as long as you love God. That's a well-trod path. Every age has had it. All kinds of people express it. I've heard it just in the last two weeks, actually. 
Uh, I was reading an article on this Essendon thing, the, the man who's lost his job, and I, what I often find myself doing is reading the comments because I'm not just interested in what a journalist says, I want to hear what people are thinking about what's been said. So it's always, I find, quite interesting. And here's a comment that was made. Um, Religion has been a contentious subject for millennia, for a thousand years. For me personally, I figure... Uh, if certain people find they feel the need to have a set of rules to live by to make them happy, fair enough. A couple of things to note. See how he thinks about religion? He thinks that religion, here's a summary of what he thinks, religion is a set of rules to live by to make you happy. Is that what religion is? We'll come back to it. But that's how he thinks. Of, if you need a set of rules to live by, then he goes, he's, he's a generous person. He goes, yeah, you go for it. If that's what you need, sure. He goes on. The problem always seems to stem from whatever tribe you devote yourself to and believe in seems to give these people a feeling of self-righteousness as they go through their life, feeling they've found the truth. So religion's about a set of rules to make you happy. Um, but the problem, he says, is not just that you have that set of rules to make you happy, but then you begin to think you've come to the truth. That the particular religion you found is the truth and it makes you feel self-righteous. As if there's one religion that's true and you see it's the same idea. It's the same idea of, um, uh, you know, there's no one truth, every religion's different for different people and that's okay. And that we ought not judge, it's very generous and open uh, and gracious. Um, and he finishes by saying this, look whatever, as long as people practice love and understanding... There can't be too much harm in that. Bottom line for the person who wrote this comment is, it doesn't matter which religion, as long as you practice love and understanding. Now that, I think, is so appealing. It's very popular. It feels right. It doesn't feel judgmental. It doesn't feel arrogant. Though we'll come to this in a second. Love and as long as you... Right. Are you tempted to go that way? I want to suggest to you this book, this sermon, operates with a completely different assumption. The drive of the whole letter and sermon, or whatever you call it, is don't drift. Why does he say that? Because to drift from Christianity, in his mind, is to drift from the only true religion. This part of the Bible is completely at odds with the popular mind around us. Now, again, I'm not sure where you're at, though I know some of you, where you're at. It may be that you are drifting with exactly this thinking, I don't want to be so narrow anymore, I still believe in God, but surely it doesn't matter which, and doesn't choosing one religion make me arrogant and superior? You might be drifting into that place, let's tackle it tonight. Now, here's the plan. We're going to tackle it by going through this uh, chapter and I'll give you a sense of the direction we're going. I want to suggest the first few verses, the first sort of five or so verses, I'm going to take us through fairly quickly, but just be alert to this. They won't seem very relevant until the end. The next chunk we look at, the second half from verse 6 down, will seem more quickly relevant, but it all will be relevant. It just won't seem that way. You with me? That's just a plea to bear with me in this first few minutes, all right? So let's look at, let's look at it. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So he's going to be talking about high priests 
and temples and tabernacles, which seems fairly irrelevant to us. It will come home in a moment. But, and what he's saying is we do have such a high priest. What, what high priest do we have? Well, that's what he'd been talking about in chapter 7 and 6 and earlier. And he's, what the point he's making is there's a certain kind of high priest we need that is different to the high priests we've had. Now, what are the kind of high priests the Jewish people had? Well, in chapter 7, verse 23, you get a hint. They're the kind of priests who were mortal. They kept dying. So they couldn't be with you through all of life because they'd come and go, come and go. But they were also, verse 26 and 27, priests who themselves had their own sin to deal with. And he says, he says what we really need is a priest who won't die, who's eternal, who can be with you and for you for your whole existence. And who's sinless, who doesn't have to deal with his own sin, who can actually represent you before God as the holy, righteous, pure mediator, priest. And he comes to chapter 8 and he says, now the main point of what we're saying is, we've, had, we've got that kind of priest. Jesus, who by his resurrection is the eternal priest. And by his holy, blameless, pure, verse 26, life, he's set apart from sinners. We have that exact priest, the better kind of priest the one who is holy and righteous. More than this, verse, uh, second half of verse 1, he's able to sit down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Sit down. He's, his work is finished. He's able to have offered a sacrifice that doesn't need repetition because his sacrifice is so bad. We'll come to that next week. So he's sat down. We have got this kind of high priest with the coming of Jesus. Um, now, point, so many of us... You're thinking, okay, I wasn't worried about the priest. Um, great that we've got that one. Just for some of you though, there is uh, a temptation for some people to go back to a religious experience where there is a priest, so Roman Catholicism, Orthodoxy, some Eastern religions have priests in them and it, you might be tempted to think that there's validity and appropriateness there. Um, what this is saying is with the coming of Jesus, we don't need those anymore. There is now only one priest, one mediator between us and God, the man Christ Jesus. Um, now the point is, don't go back to Judaism and its priests with Jesus, the perfect has come. Now, as I say, it doesn't seem relevant, but it does have some power and it will come back a little bit in a moment. Uh, let me give you its uh, further implications. What he's doing here is comparing at least two religions... Christianity and Judaism and the key to his thought is that Christianity you remember our popular way of thinking is that all religions are the same key to his thought is at least between Christianity and Judaism they're not the same it does matter which one you choose now this cuts against every instinct of popular thinking but it's a core Christian thought. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says there's only one religion. And this author says they're not the same. One is better than the other. Because the priesthood of Jesus is far superior. He's eternal and sinless, unlike human priests. 
He is God come in the flesh, who's resurrected, raised from the dead, to be our go-between and stand between. Nothing else compares to that priest when you compare, when you look at the other priests. None of them have eternal, sinless, God-man priest who lives forever to represent us before God, who has sacrificed his own person. But he's saying more than just that Jesus' Christian faith is better than Judaism. He's saying the relationship between those two religions is not just good, Judaism, better, Christianity. He is saying the difference between them is now obsolete, Judaism, and the only one left, Christianity. And here's where the relevance for us starts to ratchet up. Um, Because what emerges as you think more deeply about this is the scale of God's work in history. Let me dig here a little bit. Have a look again at verse 2. Can you see the language of true? Let's just unpick a few things. He who serves at the sanctuary, the true tabernacle. Now, what's a tabernacle? A tabernacle is a tent structure in the Old Testament that was movable. When that tent structure became fixed and permanent and built of stone, it was called the temple in Jerusalem. So tabernacle, temple, the same thing, one's temporary, one's permanent. That's the difference you see. Uh, Temple. This one, Jesus serves at the true temple. And if you look at verse 5, he serves at a sanctuary, at at the inner part of the temple, that they, they served, the old priests served at a temple sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven now that language copy and shadow is critically important for us let's dig there too Um, back in ancient times before Jesus under Moses uh, so about 1400 years before Jesus um, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and you might remember the, this story where um, God sends Moses to help his people be led out of slavery from under, Egypt, uh, and, um, under the Pharaoh and he brings them out of Egypt and he takes them to a place called Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb and at Mount Sinai God gives them the Ten Commandments which you will have heard of, the Ten Commandments, that's where it happens, it's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are given. Um, But when you come to uh, that whole experience, let me just read a couple of little bits for them, uh, for you. After the giving of the Ten Commandments and the the covenant that's established there, in chapter 25, the Lord says to Moses to build a a tabernacle. And in verse 9, or verse 8, he says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, that I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings, exactly like the pattern I will show you. So he gives them the pattern and then at the end of the chapter he says, verse 40, see that they make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. You've got to make it exactly according to the plans I give you, the pattern I give you. It's got to be a copy of what I've given you. Now Moses never knows why that matters. God just tells him it's got to be done this way. Um, Moses didn't know that there would be a moment in history in the future where the the thing from which the pattern was derived would finally turn up. Moses had no idea that what he was building a copy of 
was a real thing that would eventually emerge and take over. He wasn't told. But the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the past, present and future put it all in place. Now you think about the implications of that. Embedded in the idea of a copy is the idea of a reality and embedded in that idea is the idea of an anticipation of something more to come, a truer, more real. And the point I'm wanting to draw your attention to just at this moment is that there's a movement in the Bible. The Bible has a movement about it, which is unlike any other religious book document. Um, that is to say, the, the Bible in its earlier part has stuff that happens that's anticipating something more. A pattern, a copy. You get it in chapter 7. Come back with me. Oh, you can't, let me read chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek? You see, even in the midst of the, the priesthood that they had, the, Levit, the priest of the tribes of Levi, God dropped in their midst another kind of priest, Melchizedek, who wasn't from Levi. A whole different tribe, with no tribe actually. And what God was doing with that, says our author, was saying to them, you know this Levitical priesthood you've got? It's not going to last. There's something more coming. Profound. And what this says to us is that God is establishing in ancient history the expectation of more and he's doing it in a way that underlines the reliability of the Bible. You see, the Bible's written over about 1,400 years, 1,500 years. And it's written by about 40 different authors. Uh, back 1,400 BC, the authors that wrote then lived and died. Another author came up, another author came up. The New Testament authors, all very different. If this is just a man-made book, how did the authors back 1400 BC know to make up the idea of a copy and a pattern and a shadow and Melchizedek? How did they know to make up those ideas, to anticipate the final fulfilment of those things in the person of Jesus? How did they know to do that? What you have here is evidence of a God who superintends the whole of the Bible's writing. From the very beginning through to the end to make it all fit together in the most profound way. We are dealing with an inspired text that literally is inspired. No other book in human history has anything like this. More. Look chapter 8 in verse 5, the language of copy and shadow. Shadow. Think about how a shadow works. If I'm um, standing on the corner of a building, on one side of the corner, and the sun's shining this way, I mean, I'm sort of in shadow, but there's, there's light here. And I see on the, I can't see around the corner, but I can see a shadow moving towards me, moving past me. What do I think's happening? I think the shadow tells me that a person who has the sun behind them is casting a shadow and is moving towards, I can't see the person, but the shadow tells me a person's coming. The shadow is not the reality, 
It's an anticipation of the reality. And here's what this author is saying. He is saying the priest of the Old Testament, the Levitical priest, the temple of the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the sacrifices of the Old Testament were shadows. Helpful because they help us see a shape of the real thing that is way in the future. They're a shadow of that, to anticipate that, to help us see towards that. God gave it all as a shadow, a scale model. Why? Because the thing that he was planning to do for us was so massive and so outside of our experience, beyond our comprehension and understanding, that if it just landed in the first century, we would have had no categories to make sense of it. So he gives us shadows and copies, anticipating these things, so we have the categories of thought to make sense when Jesus comes. Ah, you're that thing. God in his grace is preparing us and setting us. But do you see what what this author is saying about Judaism then? He's saying, not just that it was good and Jesus is better. He is saying it only gained its significance from the truth that is Jesus. It really was just a shadow of the reality, not the reality itself. And once the reality came, there was no going back. It's now finished. It's obsolete. Let me illustrate this for you. Um, We've got people in our congregations who have adopted children. And it's a really tough process Um, and for various reasons they've gone down this path. Um, Good reasons, lots of blessings on them for what they've done. Um, But you go through an adoption process and sometimes it's a child overseas who's in need of a family and um, you go, you visit, you find a little girl who's in great need and you talk together and work out, yes, we'd like to invite this child to be in our family. And so it's approved as an adoption process. And um, you go home and they have to get the child ready to come out, to fly out. Um, You're waiting at home for the child to come. But the adoption agency sends you some photos so that you can anticipate the coming of your child. And so you put the photos up all around the house and I keep seeing the face of our little girl who's coming so that I know what she looks like. I can be praying for her and thinking about her and so on. And you take that photo to the airport when she arrives and you go to the airport and this little girl suddenly comes through and you go, oh, it's the girl. And she comes through. What do you now do when the girl's arrived with the photo? Well, I've seen the girl, I take the photo and go home. No, you put the photo in your back pocket and you hug the girl and you take the girl home, you see. Because the photo was to help you see the girl, understand the girl. Once the girl's here, the little girl, you, the photo now is not necessary unless, of course, she's not here and she's away. Or, but you see, the photo serves the purpose of helping me anticipate. And once the photo's here, it's done. This is what this author is saying of the Jewish Old Testament system. It's not that it was good and Jesus is better. It's rather that it is now obsolete And Jesus is the reality. Let me give you another little illustration. Uh, And this is because I I want to preach a little message about mobile phones. Um, (laughs) See, just imagine a a young child wants a mobile phone from its parents. Begs the parents for a mobile, five-year-old, six-year-old, I want a phone, I want a phone. And what what should good parents do when a child begs for a mobile phone? Say... No, very good, all right. Um, How old should a child be until they get their own mobile phone? 
Got to be able to vote. <laughs> That's, I like it. I like it. Um, it's, <laughs> just, just, just quickly drop this in there. Did you know that depression, mental health issues, correlate strongly with high use of social media on mobile phones? So, and it's particularly for girls. So just, that's why I want to preach this little sermon. Just be very wary about your mobile phone use and social media use, men and women. Really is a very serious... So, you say no to the child, but you're not cruel, so what do you do? You, you get dad to make a little timber model of a mobile phone. And you paint on it little buttons and a little aerial and give it to the child and say, there you go, you've got a mobile phone. And the kid who's five goes, awesome, all this kind of stuff, right? When they get 15, they're a little bit dirty with you. But nonetheless, the, the child's got a model. Now, what happens with this little timber model of a mobile phone when the child eventually grows up and gets their own mobile phone? What do they do with the, the little timber thing? Burn it as quickly as possible. The real thing's calm. Why the shadow anymore? It's obsolete. It never really worked anyway. And that's what this author is saying about the Jewish priesthood and sacrificial system and temple. With the coming of Jesus, the real phone has arrived. You see the relevance of, us, of this for us? Of two religions, they're not both the same. One was anticipating as a shadow and is now obsolete. They're not two paths to God. Not when you understand what Judaism actually is. And there's a, there's a movement of God in history. This is, why, this is why we call the Old Testament the Old Testament. And the New Testament the New Testament. Well, actually, there's more to it than even just this. There's a movement of God which now becomes very much more obvious when you look at verse 6. And here's where the relevance starts to ratchet up even more. Look at verse 6. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. Now, what's he saying here? Well, the language of covenant. The word covenant is used in chapter 7, it's, a, it's sort of dropped in as a, becoming a big idea now, but what does the word covenant mean? Very basically, it just means an agreement, a contract uh, between two parties. God makes an agreement, a contract with Israel in the Old Testament. And what the author is saying is that the ministry of Jesus is superior to that old covenant. Verse 7, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant... No place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant. That's what we call Old Testament. New Testament's just another way of talking about covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Um, important to understand that about the Bible. Jesus' ministry brings in a new covenant. Now, what's being said here? Well, the covenant that he's talking about, come, come with me to this one, Exodus chapter 19. The covenant that he's talking about can be, uh, in a very brief way, described in chapter 19. It gives you some sense of the shape of this covenant in verse 4. And here's, it's starting to ratchet up its relevance for us. Let me take you through this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What God is saying is this. Um, here's the arrangement, here's the agreement, here's the contract I'm going to make with you, Israel. If you keep all my laws, I'll have you. That's the promise. That's the contract. If you obey me fully, I'll let you live eternally. Leviticus 18 verse 5. I'll have you live with me. If you do your part, obey me fully, you're in. And here's now where it becomes immediately relevant to every human on the planet because although we don't operate with a formalized covenantal agreement in our heads with us we operate with an informal one that's exactly the same covenant do you remember the quote i read out earlier Um, if you need a set of rules to make you happy go for it what does he think religion is a set of rules that you have to keep now, he's probably not heard of the language of covenant, but what he's operating with is an understanding that religions are a covenant of doing. Do these rules and you'll get to heaven or to nirvana or a covenant of doing. He's, he's assuming that's what religions are. And I want to suggest to you, I think 95% of our population thinks that that's exactly what's going on. Because buried here is the sense that all humans have, that if we're going to be accepted by God, we must do something good we must be good enough however good is defined and he defined good defining good for him was love and be understanding and if you can just love and be understanding if there's a God out there he'll accept you because he's the way you get to God is by doing that's the covenant the old covenant that God had am I not right this is the the way the vast majority of people think and it might be amongst us tonight even let me just offer this uh, little exercise just do a thought experiment with me. Imagine you've, you've died and you've been uh, brought before God, the God of the universe, for judgment. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? Don't say anything, but what would you answer? Why would you, what answer would you give? God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you do to say why you should be let into heaven? Here's how I think 95% of humanity answer that question. They answer it with a do covenant, a works covenant. Their answer will, and I've asked lots of people this, their answer almost always goes like this, why should you let me into heaven? Because I have tried to be a good person. Because I have been loving and understanding. Because online, I'm a social justice warrior. (laughs) Because I have not killed anyone. Because I have cared for the environment. Because I'm not like those religious fanatic idiots. Because I have been decent. Whatever it is, what's being said is, why should you let me into heaven? Because I've tried the best I have. Because I've gone to church. Because I've done things. I'm a do person. I'm not perfect. 95% of the population of the world says that's the answer because most of it, the vast majority is we have a covenant in our minds that's exactly the same as the old covenant. And here's the deal. Every religion on the planet, except one, 
operates with a do covenant, a works covenant. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all operate with a works covenant. If you do these five things, if you follow this path, if you keep these things, you will get to wherever you want to get to. If you do enough, you'll get there. It's a works covenant, a do covenant, just like the old covenant, Exodus chapter 19. And all of this kind of feels, it makes sense. And if you drift from Christianity and say, all religions are, well, you know, whatever religion you choose, it'll get you there in the end. It feels kind of generous. But what you're effectively saying is this. All religions will get you there because they're all basically saying the same thing, a set of rules, that if you keep those sets of rules, you'll make it. Which therefore means I'm saying that everyone's kind of okay because all of us are basically okay. And if you're a Muslim who keeps your religious rules which most people assume about love, but they're not. But if you keep whatever those rules are, sincerely, you'll be okay. If you're a Buddhist and you are a loving person, because most people think Buddhism is about love, but it's not, not like we think about love. But if you, then you'll be okay. And this is, sounds very generous. And if you're irreligious and don't have a religion, as long as you're loving and understanding, if there's a God, he'll be okay too with you. It all sounds very generous, but it's operating on a works-do covenant. Now, you come back with me to chapter 8 and notice the startling thing that he says. Verse 7, if there'd been nothing wrong with the do covenant, no place would have been sought for another covenant. But God found fault not with the do covenant, but with the people. What was the fault with the people? They couldn't do. We can't do. No one can do enough. You, you, friends, um, God gave a do covenant to, to, to test humanity to see whether you could and he gave Israel every advantage so that if, if there was one group of people on the planet who could pull it off, it would be Israel and they failed. Because there's something wrong in us, it's called sin. And generation after generation failed. And, and every human who lives fails the do covenant. And the irony is the person who wrote that comment I mentioned earlier, the, the one who sounded so generous of, you know, you guys just are so self-righteous and if you just got into being loving and understanding, you'll be okay. Didn't he sound a little bit pretentious? Didn't he sound a little bit patronising? I really know what your religions are about. You may not, but I do. And I know what it's all really about is love and understanding, unlike you. Didn't he sound a little self-righteous himself? That he's come to the truth? Because all of us have sin. I become self We all, none of us can fulfill the do covenant. And here's the deal. As I get to know people, it's interesting. Um, I, 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 I look at people from a distance and you look awesome. And then I sit with you and start talking with you. And you're awesome still. But then I get to know you over years and I go, yeah, that's right. You're a sinner as well. I'm a sinner. We're all fails at the do covenant. Whatever standard you set, if it's love and understanding, he has not been very loving and understanding in the way he talks about religious people. All of us fail. And so God says, verse 8, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the house of Judah. It won't be like the old one, because they were faithless to me, and I had to turn away from them. This is the new covenant, verse 10, I'll make. I'll put my laws in their hearts, write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. I'll fix them from the inside. I won't just have laws on the outside, I'll fix them on the inside. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbour and say, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least. It won't be the prophets who know me and the king who knows me. It'll be all the people who know me. I'll do such a work in their lives. And verse 12, look at the first word of verse 12. Notice what that word is. It's the word for, because I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. What is this new covenant? It's a covenant where God will work to change the very heart of a people on the basis that he forgives them. The old covenant is the covenant of do. You do, you work and you might make it. The new covenant is God gives. God forgives. God is gracious and merciful and does it for us in the person of Jesus. And because there's a new covenant, I've got hope. I can't do, but I can receive. I can receive a gift. Thank God that the days have come. He has made this new covenant. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, took juice, and when he handed out the juice, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. What he meant was that the next day I'm going to die as a sacrifice, as the high priest offering the great sacrifice in the eternal, real temple tabernacle in heaven. I'm going to offer a sacrifice like no sacrifice has ever been offered and it'll be a sacrifice of my own blood and that blood will pay the price for all your sins so that God can forgive you. And I'll establish this new covenant based not on what you do, but on what I've done for you. Friends, are you tempted to drift? What I'm suggesting is you may not be tempted to drift out of Christianity into Judaism. Very few of you are. You may not be tempted to drift out of Christianity into another religion, actually, but what you might be tempted to do is drift out of Christianity into a broader where Christianity is just one way and everyone else has their own way. Understand what this writer is saying. He is saying if you drift away from Jesus, you're not just drifting into a broader, more generous sense of things. You're drifting into a do covenant. You're assuming that all the religions of the world which are do covenants are going to be able to work. And the whole point of the author is there's no do covenant that can. And if you drift away from Jesus, who is the only, th- only one who offers the gift covenant, the forgiveness covenant, the done covenant, the only place you'll find that, if you drift away from Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. You are lost. This is not about institutional Christianity versus other institutional religions. This is about the high priestly role of Jesus in the temple, in the, in the heavens, with a sacrifice like no other sacrifice, who brings in a whole new covenant, unique of all the religions, 
we have no hope if we go away from Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we do have this new covenant. And it's a beautiful covenant. It's a covenant of mercy, forgiveness and grace. Cling to him because he's the one who has the words of eternal life. No one else has them. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask please that that might be the case, that you would help each of us here to understand deeply and profoundly the, 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 the issues at stake with Jesus and other religions. That you would help us appreciate that outside of Jesus there's only do covenants. And, and because of sin, none can ever work. We thank you for Jesus who brings the new covenant, the covenant of it's been done, it's a gift, it's forgiveness. We thank you that we can receive that gift and pray please amongst us tonight that we all would, that you would work in our hearts to embrace the beautiful thing you've given us, a covenant where you've done the work, where it's possible for us to find forgiveness full and free, where we can be reconciled back to you as our Father. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.